Yeah, well, welcome everyone to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium today. So it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Professor Craig Watkins here for uh, his talk. So he's from University of Texas at Austin, the departments of radio, television, and film, sociology, as well as the Center for African American Studies. So uh, quite distributed at uh, UT Austin. And really thrilled to have him here because his work is, one, of course, extremely important, but also because it challenges a lot of mainstream assumptions about digital culture. So in particular, the digital divide. So it's an idea that was popular maybe 10 to 15 years ago. And uh, Professor Watkins' work, I think, really challenges some of the underlying assumptions that people have about the notion of the digital divide. So you could say that he's here dis to disabuse you of your illusions about uh, the digital divide. In particular, uh, black and Latino youth have uh, been a locus of cultural production. And through communication, play, through civic engagement, there's a lot we can learn about the kind of cultural capital and a lot we can learn from the kind of cultural capital that these particular youth have related to digital media. Uh, Professor Watkins has written on uh, uh, hip-hop and cultural empowerment, uh, multiple influential books. I encountered him first at the Digital Media and Learning Conference, giving the keynote in 2010. He's engaged a range of different kind of organizations, such as National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Drug Addiction, IBM Center for Social Software, MacArthur Foundation, and many more. But more than that, he's really worked in the trenches. So after school programs uh, with uh, children, uh, field work in pioneering his own uh, programs, say for game development, uh, to deal with the kind of issues that, are, uh, that students encounter in their own environments. And I think most importantly is this idea that I mentioned before, which is cultural capital. And so that's to say that these youth who engage with digital media are actually a locus that, that we can uh, learn from. So there's actually a kind of engagement with media and society that is powerful and that becomes a tool both for their own communities as well as communities at large. Anyway, Professor Watkins can say this all a lot better than I can, so I'm really pleased to welcome here. Uh, please give your round of applause to Craig Watkins. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Uh, Box, thanks for the introduction, and uh, thank you, uh, Comparative Media Studies, for the invitation uh, to come here and um, share a little bit of my work with you. And I'm um, looking forward to doing that, but uh, more importantly, looking forward to uh, just the conversations that typically uh, ensue uh, in, in sort of interactions uh, like this one here. Um, <clears throat> So I'll spend a little bit of time today uh, talking about some of the work that I'm currently involved in, uh, work that uh, is in collaboration with the MacArthur Foundation, and uh, talk a little bit about that initiative and where our Connected Learning Research Network fits within the sort of the trajectory of what MacArthur has been doing around uh, its sort of investment and kind of deep interest in further exploring and understanding the changing and, com the changing and complex lives uh, that young people are developing and cultivating in sort of the, the world of digital uh, and networked media. Um, so before I get started, maybe uh, just give you a little bit of background in terms of who I am and, and what I do. Um, so by training, I am uh, a sociologist, uh, and I think that's okay to, to, to confess to here uh, in this crowd. Uh, not always the case uh, in, in some places, though. Um, but so I bring... Uh, 
kind of a sociological inclination to my uh, efforts to sort of understand young people's participation in digital media culture. So interested in understanding both the environment, the context, the behaviors, the practices, the social relationships uh, that are all a part of a larger kind of ecology that helps to kind of shape and give life uh, to young people's active and robust engagement with media and technology. Um, so I spent a lot of my time, or I have spent a lot of my time over the years, most recently um, doing a lot of interviews with young people, kind of one-on-one interviews, but also some, some broad kind of focus group interactions, um, talking with parents, uh, meeting with educators, uh, teachers, spending time in schools, um, really following young people um, as they kind of migrate deeper and deeper into the digital world. So some kind of virtual ethnography, we do a little bit of that, looking at how young people use uh, platforms from you know, not that long ago, seemingly very long ago, it seems, uh, MySpace, uh, more recently to Facebook and Tumblr, uh, Twitter, uh, but really just trying to understand the ways in which young people uh, communicate and connect and interact uh, and perform and produce their own identities and participatory cultures uh, in these kinds of environments and spaces. Um, and more recently, we've, we've been spending a lot of time, as I'll, as I'll talk about today, uh, in schools. And in one school in particular, uh, where we're working with uh, teachers, working with students, uh, also spending some time in, in an after-school space that they've developed around uh, digital media and production. Um, and so it's really, uh, as, as Fox had indicated, I, I like to refer to it as, as kind of immersing myself in the, in the digital trenches. Uh, and, um, and when you come up uh, from those trenches, um, you know, I, I always find my own thoughts, my own perspective, my own insights uh, just sort of enriched uh, and, and informed. Um, and I always try to preface, you know, you know comments and observations uh, with, 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 with what I think is a key point. And that is that I see myself first and foremost kind of as a learner. And, um, and so the work that we do, the field work that we do, the research that we do, the, the ethnography work that we do, it's all really designed to, to learn uh, and to explore and to observe and then to kind of share uh, just our own kind of insights and analysis of that work that we're doing. And that's a little bit of what I'll be doing uh, today. Okay. So, um, so part of this, this work that I'll talk about today is, is kind of informed by this kind of shifting uh, digital divide uh, concept and notion uh, that I want to talk about. And historically, right, when we've talked about the digital divide, um, you know, it's primarily been an access, and I'm sorry, a narrative that's pivoted primarily around the issue of access. Uh, you know, uh, young people's access to technology, their access to computers, their access to the internet, uh, their, their access to the kinds of network publics that permit uh, a certain degree of participation and engagement with technology. Um, and I would say that, that fairly, you know, over the last few years or so, I mean, really going back 10 plus years, I mean, there have been researchers and kind of technology uh, activists and community activists who have, have been working sort of very diligently to push this narrative in a very different direction, and focusing less on access and more on what you know, you know, Henry Jenkins and others have referred to as the sort of participation uh, gap, the, the kind of participatory uh, divides. And that is thinking more and more not, not about necessarily whether or not young people have access to technology, but thinking about the kinds of skills, the kinds of competencies, uh, the kinds of inclinations, the kinds of experiences and support networks and mechanisms that they bring uh, to their engagement with technology. And that's certainly uh, where a, a lot of my work has, has kind of focused on. And so as, as, I, as I'll talk about later, you know, the, my lens to which I look at the, at the issue of digital equity uh, is, is, is moving more and more away from the question of access and more to thinking about participation, but also thinking about literacy. 
and the ways in which young people develop, uh, the kinds of literacies, the kinds of skills and opportunities that allow them to more fully leverage uh, the capabilities and the power that network media provides all of us with. So some of this work, um, you know, has just has, has really been kind of informed by um, an emerging picture uh, from a lot of the research that's been conducted over the last 10 years or so. I would say starting around 05, 06, 07, a very interesting uh, picture began to emerge from data. And this is just uh, one data point from the Kaiser Family Foundation back in 1999, then later 2004, and then most recently 20, uh, 2010. Uh, they've conducted these large set of national uh, surveys and studies where they've investigated kids between the ages of 8 and 18 and looking at their media environment uh, and sort of studying different aspects, different dimensions, different features of their engagement with, with media, how much media they own, how much media is available in the household, uh, what kinds of media uh, platforms and tools are they using, from print to technology to digital to mobile to social to games, you name it. Um, and the interesting thing is, is, is the, the Kaiser Report, much like uh, if you follow some of the data that Nielsen has been producing, if you follow some of the data that the Pew Internet and American Life Project has been producing over the last few years, uh, some of the work that MacArthur supported, some of the work that I talk about, uh, for example, in the Younger and the Digital there's been this sort of interesting uh, kind of turn and shift. Um, where for the very first time, and, and this, this particular data point is, uh, so students were, this is some self-reporting data, um, where um, you know, students were reporting roughly how much, uh, on, a, on any given day, how much uh, time are they kind of exposed to media. Uh, and it's striking to see uh, that black and Latino youth are reporting substantial amounts of time right, during the day, up to about 13 hours a day, uh, you know, exposed to some type of media. Again, a variety of different kinds of media uh, platforms. And of course, we might ask ourselves, you know, how in the world you know, can someone spend 13 hours a day <laughs> exposed to media? But if you think about right, the kind of, multi, uh, the kind of multitasking that young people do with media, using the internet simultaneously along with music media, with television, uh, with games, uh, with mobile, you begin to see how this sort of acute over the course of a day and can, in fact, reach uh, these kinds of numbers. But for me, the more interesting, some of the more interesting data points from this study, and again, we see it with the, with, with the Pew Internet and American Life Project, we see it in other places as well, is that for the first time starting around 06, 07, we began to, to, to get an interesting picture which suggested that black and Latino youth were spending as much, if not more time, online than their white and more middle-class counterparts, right? And this is kind of a shift away from that narrative that had been kind of fully established uh, that typically sort of uh, defined and articulated black and Latino youth as either kind of disconnected, uh, as sort of on the wrong side of the digital divide, if you will. Um, and we know that, for example, now that, um, that they're certainly quite active in terms of how they use social network sites, where they're spending as much, if not more time, you know, first on MySpace, now on Facebook. They're spending substantially more time on Twitter uh, compared to white youth and more uh, affluent youth, for example. And so it has compelled all of us, I think, to, to kind of rethink the kinds of questions that we bring to these spaces, that we bring to these environments, and certainly has forced me to rethink some of the questions that I uh, have developed and contemplated in terms of my own work. And just to give you one example of what I call the mobile paradox, right? So if it's Kaiser, if it's Pew, if it's Nielsen, uh, again, other reports, it's fairly clear now, right, that black and Latino youth are quite active when it comes to the use of mobile devices, right? And that in some respects, they have been kind of early adopters 
uh, mobile devices, particularly as a as an online ramp, uh, as a as a networking tool, uh, as kind of a media consumption and, and entertainment device. So, for example, we know that they're spending much more time uh, using social networks via their mobile phones, uh, Twitter, uh, games, listening to music, uh, play, uh, watching video, uh, so forth and so on. And this represents, in part, what I what I call kind of a, a, a paradox. And that paradox is that. At the same time that this is happening, and we started seeing this uh, around 06, 07, in a lot of the kind of focus groups that we would do with black and Latino youth, uh, and we were always struck by uh, the presence of mobile devices. We were always struck by how engaged they were with mobile devices, and we would actually ask them, you know, because we like to get pictures of them with, with the technology that they own, so we would ask them, right, to take out their device. Well, we really never had to ask them to take out their devices because they always had them out already. Um, but nevertheless, you know, they would show us just interesting things that they were doing via their mobile devices in terms of, uh, you know, if it was ringtones, right? And you, you, I mean, you can make a very strong case, right, that, that the whole sort of economy of ringtones was in part kind of inspired by the adoption practices of black and Latino youth, uh, particularly their kind of enthusiasm for hip-hop culture and sort of hip-hop-oriented kinds of ringtones uh, really helped to build a whole new kind of business model for the music industry. Um, but, but, but the paradox was that even as they were quite active in terms of the mobile devices, we would oftentimes hear stories about the degree to which they would go to homes where they lacked access to broadband, for example. Okay. And so we know that broadband is associated with a range of things in terms of one's participation and engagement in the world of social and digital media. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, those who have access to broadband at home not only are much more likely to spend time online, but they're more likely to do a wider range of things online. Uh, they're more likely to produce, distribute, and share content as opposed to simply consuming content. And so the paradox, right, is, is that even as these kids were beginning to develop some fairly active and dynamic sort of mobile experiences, uh, that it was oftentimes uh, happening within the context of home environments and home spaces where the opportunity to realize uh, those kinds of practices were somewhat limited and constrained. Um, and I remember, um, you know, back in, I, I, forget, I forget now, is it, oh, I forget when Steve Jobs, when he introduced the iPad, was it 07, 08? iPad, uh, uh, t- uh, 20, uh, 2010. And, um, you know, so in, in sort of typical, uh, you know, Steve Jobs fashion, um, you know, quite dramatic. And, you know, he kept emphasizing how the iPad was like holding the Internet in your hands. Um, and, you know, as I saw those comments, it made me think of the young people that we had been meeting. And these young people had already been holding the Internet in their hands for some time now, primarily via their mobile devices. And so the question that I began to ask myself, though, is what type of Internet? were these kids holding in their hands? And what did it enable or empower them to do? And how does that begin to present some really interesting challenges and opportunities as well? Um, so this has kind of really forced me to move away from this, this, this gulf between the digital haves and have-nots, the technology rich and the technology poor, and to sort of think about what I, what I refer to as kind of the digital edge. And, um, and so this is part of a, 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 a research project that's being funded and supported by the MacArthur Foundation. Um, so about, um, I guess about a year or so ago, uh, a group of us, uh, just to name a few people, uh, Mimi Ito, who some of you may be, uh, who, who may know, um, she's a part of the network. In fact, Mimi's a chair of our network. Uh, Katie Salen, who's a game designer, um, who uh, has also been sort of instrumental in developing, for example, Quest to Learn, uh, the school for digital kids that first opened in New York City, and most recently they opened up a Quest to Learn in Chicago. Um, Sonia Livingstone, the London School of Economics, is also a part of our research network, and Sonia has spent uh, sort of a, a career looking at 
uh, children and media, children and technology. More recently, uh, with, the Euro- with the European Union, looking at issues of privacy and safety and risk and the kinds of opportunities that kids experience online. And so this is, this is a sort of a network. We're funded for three years. Um, and each of us have kind of carved out our, our own kind of slice, if you will, of this, this larger project, which we're calling Connected Learning. Uh, uh, and it's the Connected Learning uh, Research Network. Um, and the project that, that I'm developing and the team that I've assembled in Austin at the University of Texas, um, we're looking at what we call the digital edge. Um, and this is a reference, right, to this kind of ever-evolving uh, landscape uh, that, I, that I've been trying to allude to and to, to paint a portrait for you here today. But it speaks in part, right, to this reality that even as more and more kids, a greater diversity of young people than ever before in this country are now using various kinds of social and digital and mobile media technologies. That, just, that even as that is happening, it's also happening in, in a way that, that, that recreate or at least sort of establishes a very different context and a very different environment for how we begin to think about issues of digital equity. So one of the, the kind of framing uh, points and perspectives for this work is that um, not all digital media ecologies are equal. So even though more and more young people are now online, more and more people are now participating in network media, mobile devices you know, are, are beginning to provide some opportunities there that is oftentimes still happening in contexts, in, in spaces, and in, in, in kind of learning ecologies and communities that aren't necessarily equal. And, and so how do we begin to, to, to sort of understand that and represent that empirically? Uh, how do we begin to perhaps develop um, interventions that, that sort of recognize that and try to address these issues of equity that still persist? Um, and, um, and so I think this is, this, is, this, is, this is important for our work. It's also an attempt to look at uh, young people and schools and teachers and families and communities that are participating in the digital world, but, 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 but within conditions and within, within constraints uh, that can be quite perilous. So for many of the young people that we're looking at in the school that we're in, they're coming from homes, right, that are on the financial edge. They're coming from homes that are, that are lacking a certain degree of economic and social and familial stability. Uh, they're going to schools every day, right, that are simply struggling just to provide basic standard curriculum to get kids to show up, to get bodies in their seats. Uh, and so this is, in, in some respects, uh, an environment, a space, a community uh, that is typical of what's becoming increasingly more and more, I would argue, uh, the norm in our country as we begin to think about the implications of the wealth gap uh, and how that uh, resonates in a variety of different ways. So part of this work in terms of the digital edge is, is an attempt to understand uh, this, what some demographers refer to as a, a kind of demographic tipping point. Uh, and so as we were preparing to do this work, we, we spent a lot of time looking at the 2010 uh, U.S. Census and particularly looking at a lot of the data trends related to young people ages 18 uh, years old and younger. And what we see there is, is some sort of historic trends and developments happening in terms of the degree to which young people 18 and younger are more racially and ethnically diverse than ever before. Um, and the degree to which uh, you know, this has great implications not only for our communities, but more importantly for our schools. Right? So I'm, you know, I'm in Texas, and we've got some, some of our colleagues who are in California, um, we've got some in Colorado, uh, here in Massachusetts, actually here in Boston, um, London I mentioned. But, but I mention this because um, just take Texas and California as, as, as examples, right? And if you think about what's happening in public education in these states in terms of the kinds of stress, stresses that these uh, institutions are facing, one of them has to do right, with the changing demographics of the student population uh, and the fact that for the very first time within the last year or two, Texas and I think California more, more recently have sort of tipped to now where more than 50%, roughly 50%, a little bit more than 50%, 51, 
of the students attending or enrolled in public education now are non-white. They're Latino, they're Asian, they're African-American, and they're multiracial. And it suggests, right, that we, we, we have sort of entered a really sort of interesting period. And this is just one, one, one way of, of sort of visually representing this. So what you'll see here in terms of the dark blue regions uh, in, in, in districts and counties are where the percentage of infants um, under one who are non-white exceeds 60% and above, okay? And so what you see, for, again, in, particularly in Texas, uh, New Mexico, um, you know, Arizona, California, uh, Florida, but even up and down the sort of eastern seaboard here, you see a situation where, where um, again, demographers are talking about sort of this really sort of interesting tipping point where we see children and young people, be, again, becoming more racially, racially and ethnically diverse than ever before. And I think that has you know, real serious implications in terms of how we think about the future of education, how we think about the future of learning, and what I would argue right, is the future of young learners. Right? Who will those young learners be? You know, who will be filling those seats? Who will those bodies in our public schools and in our public educational institutions be? And increasingly, right, all of the data suggests that they will come from these communities that historically have been sort of disenfranchised, uh, again, are sort of on this kind of final uh, sort of financial and economic edge. So this is, this is some of the shaping context for the work that we're doing. The other thing is sort of inspired by the work that, that Mimi and others did with the, uh, with the MacArthur Foundation uh, back in 05, 06, 07, when they first started this field work, where they conducted a fairly massive ethnographic study of young people's digital lives, which played out uh, and was published in this book here. But it was an attempt, right, to really begin to, to kind of to, to, to look beneath um, some of the broader kind of statistical trends and patterns and begin to look at uh, community, begin to look at culture, begin to look at practice, begin to look at behavior in a much closer, uh, uh, through a much more closer and in-depth uh, lens. And this is kind of the work that we're bringing uh, to, to our project, the, the, the kinds of methods and processes that we're bringing to our work, which again is, is called Connected Learning. And just to give you just a, a, a quick snapshot, and we can talk more about the Connected Learning project and concept if you're interested, but it's this idea of sort of understanding uh, the many different nodes that make up a young person's kind of learning community or learning ecology. And this idea, right, that as, as many of us here, I think, would, would sort of readily agree with, that school isn't the only place where learning takes place, right? That, that in fact, school is only one node in young people's larger kind of learning ecology. And we, we tend to suggest, uh, those of us working on this project with the MacArthur Foundation, or at least tend to believe that, in fact, school is becoming increasingly sort of a diminishing node in kids' learning ecology. And so how do we begin to understand the kinds of interests that kids develop, uh, how those interests take place and oftentimes take shape outside of school? How do we begin to understand the relationship of, of, of the peer community and the peer ecology in terms of the larger kind of learning community and learning networks that young people develop? And also, how do we, how do we understand, right, uh, sort of the, the, the academic spaces and academic environments? And so uh, I'm probably not giving a lot of justice to this model as, as we sort of developed it. And again, we can talk more about it later. But it's really sort of an attempt to sort of think about uh, the kind of diverse kind of social and learning networks and communities that young people are connected to. And how do you begin to build uh, learning opportunities? How do we begin to understand the different pathways that, that, that both kind of shape and inform how young people move across these different learning networks? So that learning happens not only in school, but also how they're able to take those opportunities, to take those experiences into peer culture. And likewise, bring what's happening in the peer community back into the school to take the interests that they're developing uh, in these different kinds of ways uh, and have them sort of matter across their learning nodes uh, as varied as they might be. 
So the work that we're doing is, is in a school that we're, we're just to protect uh, their, their, maintain their anonymity. Uh, we're calling it Texas City High School. And um, it's a fairly interesting um, school, and, and, and we've, we've been fortunate enough to get some, some really interesting access to the students, to classes, uh, to teachers, uh, to what's happening both in school but also what's happening after school. Um, just to give you uh, just a real quick snapshot in terms of the, the demographic profile of, of, of the school, it's a, uh, over 2,000 students uh, in the school, about 2,200 or so, roughly. Um, primarily uh, about 35, 40% Latino, about 25 to 30% African American, the rest made up of white and uh, Asian Americans. Um, this school is also um, sort of designated by, by, by the district as kind of at risk. And we actually have been kind of, uh, kind of trying to problematize this whole notion of, of at-risk youth and how that gets uh, realized in, in, in formal spaces and by formal institutions like this. Um, at-risk is oftentimes uh, a way of sort of thinking about and, and identifying the, the sort of tracking practices that schools participate in in terms of how some students are placed on kind of low-track curriculum versus high-track curriculums, and we know the, dif- the differential outcomes and experiences based on whether or not you're regarded as a low-track student, therefore a low performer, the kinds of courses that you have access to, the kinds of learning opportunities that you have access to vis-a-vis someone who's considered college-bound or on more of a kind of high-track trajectory. Uh, many of these students, again, come from kind of economically challenged households. About 60% or so are on sort of uh, the lunch-supported uh, programs. Again, and it's fairly ethnically uh, diverse as well. Um, so we, we've had access to a few different sites within the school, three uh, technology classes, including a game design class, actually two game design classes, and then a video production, video technology class. I'll talk a little bit about uh, the After School Digital Media Club that we've also been observing and, and working with as well, which presents a whole different set of opportunities and, and, and practices and identities that young people don't necessarily get a chance to cultivate inside the school. Uh, and then also we've, we've had a chance to visit uh, these stu- uh, some of these students in their homes. Uh, and also in kind of some of the extracurricular activities that they participate in. Um, We've drilled down even further and taken a smaller sample of those students uh, just to uh, follow them for an entire year. Uh, Roughly nine males, nine females. We've also had a chance to do some in-depth work with uh, different teachers and mentors, as well as parents parents, uh, and guardians uh, likewise. And this is kind of what we do. Um, We spend a lot of time with them, uh, talking with them via sort of semi-structured interviews, observing them kind of in the spaces that they're in. Um, this is some of the, the kind of immersive uh, data collection that we've, we've been participating in. Over 150 interviews we've conducted, about 120 hours in the classroom. Uh, we've also uh, sort of encouraged, uh, we wanted them to participate in our data collection and in the work that we were doing. So students have been maintaining blogs for us, they've been taking pictures for us, they capture different aspects of their lives and their sort of day-to-day experiences. Um, and we've also you know, attended different, uh, several stu- student assemblies. Because we're in Texas, we also were obligated to attend a high school football game, um, and that was interesting. And it sort of speaks to, again, a, a range of, of different activities uh, that we've been to, uh, trying to get involved in. Um, you know, here I am uh, working with a, a group of students in one of the classrooms, and I sort of purposely sort of coordinated my schedule this year, and fortunately enough got support from the university and my department to be able to actually spend some time in a classroom hands-on, working with students, working with teachers, sort of doing some design work, uh, assessing the work that students are doing, and really just being a part of the community. So we didn't want to just go in and be researchers, kind of flies on the wall, kind of watching what was happening. We actually wanted to roll up our sleeves and, and really get involved and sort of support and help them do the kinds of things that we, we thought were important. 
And so, um, you know, a range of things have been happening in terms of trying to create more dynamic uh, kinds of learning experiences that are more student-centered as opposed to uh, teacher-centered. Um, allowing students to bring outside interest uh, into the class. So in this case, uh, this is one of the game design classes that we're working with. Uh, and here's a student uh, who's very interested in, in kind of digital music production. And so the teacher uh, working with us and us working with the teacher, we've kind of made, a, made, a, made it an environment where students can actually bring some of those outside interests into the classroom. Some of those, these kinds of informal kind of learning practices and behaviors and identities that they develop outside of these formal learning spaces into the classroom. And we think that that represents in some ways some of these elements and components of what we regard as a kind of a, a connected learning. Here again is another student uh, working with a, a partner of his. Uh, again, they're uh, programming, composing, and, and creating music uh, for the game itself. So let me just give you. Um, so we're we're so we started back in September. Uh, we'll be in the school throughout the remainder of this year. We're actually planning on doing some work with the students over the summer, and so we are, we are still literally in the field, uh, doing uh, data collection, doing research, participating in these classes and projects. And so a lot of what 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 we what we present in terms of the work that we've we've been doing thus far is very preliminary. Um, you know, we are in the process of sort of, you know, thinking about, you know, coding our data, uh, getting our, our, our data sets uh, kind of coordinated, and we'll move into some more sophisticated and deeper kind of analysis over the course of the summer. But let me share with you just um, two or three themes uh, that, that, that have emerged as striking and interesting in terms of some of the work that we're doing. So this is, uh, again, what we, what we kind of characterize as connected learning in, in edge communities. Again, this is a school that in some respects... Um, you know, embodies, um, you know, some of the more interesting, uh, more familiar uh, kinds of themes that we associate with large kind of urban schools, um, you know, where there's, where there's, you know, in terms of, you know, s state standards and, and things of this nature, perhaps not reaching the bar, kind of falling short, uh, you know, problems with, um, uh, you know, with, with, with attendance, problems with engagement, uh, problems with uh, motivation, uh, these kinds of things. And this is certainly something that we've been able to observe kind of up close uh, and in some really interesting and striking ways. So, so, so what's kind of emerging for us in this space that we're in, and how do we begin to think about these principles uh, and this whole notion of connected learning in a school like this? So, so one thing that, that, that has struck us is um, Janet Margulies wrote, wrote a really interesting book called Stuck in the Shallow End. Uh, and in this book, she's this is research based in Southern California, uh, but in the in the work, she's um, you know looking at um, a diversity of schools. Again, some some schools with with low resources, some schools with high resources, um, uh, low track students versus high track students. And what she noted is, is that in some of the schools that she attended, right, that again students coming from uh, kind of poor and working class households and communities. Um, you know, uh, schools where, uh, again, they were, were struggling with some of, some of the basic standards of how you constitute and build and maintain schools today. She talked about how these schools were, were some of the computer science courses, for example, uh, where they had computers available, where they had certain software uh, applications available. But she, talked, she described these schools as technology-rich uh, but yet curriculum-poor. And in some ways, this, this certainly resonates with, with, with what we've encountered in the school that we've been in. Um, so in this school, for example, uh, you know, we see students with, um, with amazing uh, kinds of technologies in terms of the computers that they have access to, how these computers are um, uh, kind of equipped with different kinds of software applications, uh, you know, cameras, uh, you know, video technology, uh, you name it, right? And, 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 and these students, at least in the two classes that we're in, 
Uh, there's not a lack of resources and not a lack of technology, but there does appear to be a, a lack of a kind of coherent and, and kind of forward-thinking curriculum that's designed and implemented in ways that might further leverage and use and maximize the potential of these technologies in the classroom. So, for example, I mentioned uh, the, the game design, game development class that we're in. Students have access to GameStar Mechanic, you know, which is uh, you know, a kind of a basic tool that allows students to author and create uh, some fairly uh, quick and playable games. But they even have access to Game Salad, right, which is an another kind of game authoring tool, a game authoring software that even goes a little bit further than GameStar Mechanic insofar as students, uh, much more uh, in terms of the features, much more customized games. So students can, uh, in, they can bring in their own music, their own original artwork, their own stories, their own characters, their own design environments. All of that can be a kind of incorporated into a, a game salad platform, which at least up to this point is primarily for the iOS uh, platform, so Apple. Uh, so, so these are games that can be played on the iPad, on Macs, on, on iPhones. Uh, and this is, this is something that they have access to. And yet the curriculum and yet the kind of instruction and the opportunities to really leverage and use these platforms and use these technologies is lacking in some important uh, kinds of ways. So the instructor, for example, in this class has no game design experience, right? So he's very limited in terms of what he's able to offer the students. And so while he's very encouraging and supporting in terms of expertise and in terms of the support networks that he has to build a much more dynamic learning space, much more limited in terms of what's available here. We've also in, encountered this really interesting uh, uh, sort of uh, district-wide policy where they're blocking a lot of the, the, the kinds of social media platforms that, uh, that we would like to see students be able to use. Uh, so we, we talk a lot about network literacy. We talk a lot about network media and the importance, right, of learning how to navigate uh, these kinds of tools, these kinds of spaces, uh, these kinds of systems. Um, I wrote a piece um, that, that appeared on D DML Central's website, my website, theyoungandadigital.com, and also ran on the Huffington Post uh, called What Schools Are Really Blocking uh, When They Block Social Media? Um, and in this case, we feel like schools are, are, are really sort of limiting uh, both the learning opportunities, uh, but also the design and production opportunities, the networking opportunities that students might otherwise encounter. So how do you begin to create right, a kind of networked learning environment, a, a connected learning environment, when you're in some cases literally disconnected and cut off? from these tools and applications and opportunities. Um, and when we talk to teachers, when we even talk to the principal, they don't quite understand uh, and believe in uh, this sort of filtering and, and kind of blocking that happens. Uh, they see it as a problem, and yet at the district-wide level, uh, it's a case that's still having to be made, right? And why social media is not, right, a detriment or not an impediment to learning, but in fact can be a facilitator and something that encourages and benefits learning. And why wouldn't schools want to sort of create environments and create opportunities for students to learn some of the ethical responsibilities that come along with being a citizen in a digital world, as well as also understanding the potential, right, and the kinds of opportunities that network media provides. And so we, 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 we've struggled with this. Um, you know, students struggle with this, although I have to say that students are quite creative. Uh, and one of the things that, 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 that we are beginning to learn more and more about are the kind of creative workarounds uh, that students are able to, uh, to practice. And so uh, how they are able to find alternative ways to do the kinds of things that they want to do. In this case, if a, if a, if a social media platform that they want to use and get access to is blocked, uh, you know, their proxy service that they share with each other that allow them to break through those walls and to break through those filters. And this is, this is a kind of creative kind of maneuvering and kind of cat and mouse game, right? 
that is oftentimes quite typical in environments and, and in spaces like this that we find quite interesting uh, and yet uh, sort of speak to uh, both the compelling uh, nature uh, in terms of young students' desire to participate in this world uh, and yet oftentimes in environments and in spaces that don't fully support or understand the world in which they're trying to connect to and be a part of. We've also been, been struck by um, some of the, what, what some researchers have referred to as, as, as when they talk about digital equity and, and how these issues are playing out beyond traditional notions of the digital divide, the kind of uneven support networks uh, that, uh, that, that communities face. Uh, here's just a, a shot from a school that I visited actually in, in Buenos Aires in, in Argentina. Uh, and I've been invited along with some others to come and, and observe some, an initiative that they had launched uh, nationwide uh, to provide their, uh, their secondary uh, school students, which in Argentina I think is 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, uh, with netbooks. Uh, and they were very proud of this program, very proud of this initiative. The Ministry of Education uh, was, was behind this. This was, this was sort of a massive movement and a massive effort uh, to kind of build bridges into what they thought was the 21st century and what learning should look like. And so as we begin to tour a couple of the schools, and in particular this school, which is, which is primarily attended by kids who come from fairly impoverished uh, communities and households, a really sort of interesting set of challenges began to, to kind of emerge for me. And as, as I you know, talked with the, with, with the director of the school through a, through a, through a, through a translator, I learned that many of these kids, uh, for them, this is the first time that they've owned a device like a network computer. Uh, this is the first time that they've had access to their own device. Uh, many of these kids leave school and go to homes uh, where there is no connection to the internet, uh, where this netbook would basically be useless. Um, but, but interestingly enough, too, was, was at least in, in, in some respects, uh, the teacher's sort of uncertainty about what these netbooks represented in the classroom. And in some cases, you had uh, teachers who embraced the netbooks and what they provided in terms of a learning opportunity. But there were others, right, who were much more reluctant to embrace them. In part, I, I think, because there wasn't the necessary kind of infrastructure and kind of supporting network that allowed them to actually sort of utilize these tools and technologies in more empowering and interesting kinds of ways. And we've seen this also happening in the school that we're in. And Margulies talked about this in her work. Others have talked about it as well, is that in resource-poor uh, schools, Right, the kinds of supporting networks that are necessary right, to build and create an environment where teachers, too, can become learners, right? where teachers, too, can become part of a learning ecology that's dynamic, that allows them to participate in meaningful kinds of ways uh, and to really kind of benefit from, from the knowledge of others, from this kind of collective intelligence, that when teachers are kind of isolated or when teachers are in environments where they are the only ones responsible for technology in an entire school of over 2,200 students, how daunting of a challenge, how daunting of a task that is. So in this school... Literally, two teachers are primarily responsible for maintaining and building uh, any kind of technology-oriented curriculum that's happening in this space. And it's something that's overwhelmed them. Uh, it's something that has drained them. And as we've had a chance to watch them and observe them and interact with them over the course of the year, uh, you really begin to wonder uh, you know, just how successful can they really be in an environment like that. And then finally, let me talk about one of the more interesting spaces um, uh, that we've, 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 we've learned about in the school. And it's actually something that's happening kind of out of school, right? What, what some people might refer to as kind of informal learning, uh, you know, non-curriculum-based kind of learning. Um, and this is the Digital Media Club. And, and what we've learned about this school is that it has a fairly robust uh, kind of club culture. So it's fashion, there's debate, uh, different languages. Um, and, and digital media is also a landing spot for students who are sort of interested in technology, who want to do production, 
who want to do game design, uh, who want to produce videos, who want to be involved in, 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 this, in this particular space and in this particular world. Um, it's been interesting as we've, as we've had a chance to meet students and get to know students how for a number of them, the Digital Media Club is actually the thing that, that, that gets them excited about school. It's the reason that some of them admit that they actually even come to school. Uh, and so it, 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 it represents what we think is, is an interesting um, set of practices and relationships um, and opportunities that we think that the larger, sort of wider school community can learn from in terms of what it is about this space, what it is about this environment, the kinds of interactions and opportunities that students experience that make it a kind of a, a compelling space for them, a compelling environment for them, where these students are spending literally four or five or six hours after school working on the projects associated with the Digital Media Club, spending their weekends coming back to the school, right? a place that they admittedly don't necessarily like right? to participate in the kinds of activities uh, and, uh, and work that's happening uh, via the Digital Media Club. In some respects, the Digital Media Club represents this kind of dynamic, again, kind of dynamic and formal learning environment uh, that, that, that represents an example of what a connected learning space might look like. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's simultaneously a social space, where students kind of congregate and, and kind of, you know, sort of socialize and hang out with each other. It's a learning space, but it's also an interest-driven space, right, where, where students bring particular sets of interests, certain kinds of motivations and inclinations to their, their, their aspirations for being in this space and the kinds of identities that, as a result, they get a chance to cultivate, explore, and experiment with. Uh, this reminds me a little bit of U Media. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with, with U Media, a Y-O-U, uh, M-E-D-I-A, uh, but it's a... It's a it's, um, it's a library that's been supported uh, largely by the MacArthur Foundation. Uh, it's in the basement of the Harold Washington Library in downtown Chicago. And it's really um, a way of kind of rethinking what a library might, might look like in a community uh, and how a library might be a much more kind of connected learning space, a much more desirable space for, for, for kids to, uh, to spend time in. Um, and in fact, um, there, there now has been an initiative launched by the MacArthur Foundation, I think the American Library Association, maybe with some support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to help fund and build uh, 30 additional U-Media libraries around the country. There was an initial competition for that. I think some cities have been awarded the $20,000 grant, sort of start, startup grant to build a similar kind of space. But it's this idea, right, of, of, of making and designing libraries that are more production-centered, uh, libraries that are more social social uh, libraries that are more hands-on, libraries that have a really sort of interesting connection to the community and to the lives of the young people uh, that, that enter them. Uh, very different from the kind of libraries uh, that I used to visit as a kid where you were expected primarily right, to be quiet, to sit, read your book, uh, and not disturb anybody. Uh, and in fact, uh, Media is the antithesis to that notion or to that model of a library. Uh, and it has really kind of encouraged librarians around the country, and I would argue increasingly around the world, uh, who haven't to begin to start thinking about um, you know, what the library of the future might look like and how it might begin to take on some of these qualities and characteristics. In the Digital Media Club, there's also this really sort of interesting sort of transmedia uh, project that's taking place. Uh, so students are making, uh, I mentioned this earlier in, 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 a, in a casual talk that I gave to, to the Civic Center, uh, but students are, the, the major sort of project is a, is a short film narrative. 
uh, that they had produced. Uh, they solicited invitations for, for students to submit scripts. There was a rigorous process to select a script that would be produced. Uh, they put together a pretty massive production team to shoot uh, the, the, the film, the short. Uh, it was submitted to an international film festival, has been accepted, and some of the students will be going later this spring to participate uh, in this very um, well-known and prestigious international film festival. But accompanying that uh, has been a production team that's been largely responsible for producing webisodes, which kind of chronicle uh, the kind of behind-the-scenes uh, production of this piece. Um, there's also been a documentary uh, kind of telling the history and the story of the Digital Media Club that's been the larger uh, kind of space uh, for which uh, this whole enterprise has taken shape. Uh, and, um, and so it, 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 it represents a really interesting uh, way of thinking about storytelling, the way of thinking about media production, the way of thinking about leveraging the different kinds of skills and identities and aspirations that young people bring to this space and bring to this environment. And we, we found it to be a really sort of eye-opening uh, experience. And we're, we spent a lot of time watching, observing uh, the work that they produce, just the process itself. It's been rigorous. It hasn't always been easy. Uh, but students have spent an enormous amount of time. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, um, the teacher who helps to coordinate this along with a, a local film production company has also allowed students participating in the project to bring this project into his actual formal classes which has created some interesting dynamics and interesting opportunities, some confusion amongst parents about, you know, where does school end and this after-school stuff take place. Uh, but, but again, it sort of speaks to what we see as the promise of connected learning, where you begin to blur and break down these kinds of, you know, um, uh, arbitrary divisions and distinctions between where formal learning takes place, where informal learning takes place, uh, what schools could be about, and how schools could be much more attractive kinds of learning environments for students. So let me end by talking just a little bit about how, how my work with this project, how my work more broadly with the MacArthur Foundation, um, has really kind of presented some interesting challenges uh, to me personally and professionally. And some of the work that I'm now sort of engaged in and some of the work that I'm trying to develop. And so one of the questions that I've been asking myself is how do you design a, a, a sort of a future building kind of learning space? Um, and this is, this, is, this is some of the work that we're planning for this summer where we, we're, we're in the process of working with some graduate students as well as with a kind of local game uh, design studio in Austin uh, to offer a, a, a summer uh, game design workshop uh, for middle school students. And we can talk a little bit about why middle school students if you're interested. Uh, but um, but we've been asking us, I've been asking myself a lot of questions in terms of how, how we're approaching designing this space, designing this environment, designing uh, what we anticipate happening uh, over the course of this two-week project that we're doing. And we're doing something similar also with, uh, with the high school as well. But I've been reading um, some of the work of, of, of Carrie Facer. Um, she wrote a really interesting book called Learning Futures. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a really sort of interesting read for me insofar as how she thinks about learning futures. Um, and one of her more striking arguments, and I think others have made this as well, is that when we think about schools, when we think about education, when we think about learning and young people, it's, it's oftentimes kind of under the notion of preparing them with the kinds of skills and competencies that would allow them to compete in the kind of global information economy, right? It's about jobs. Uh, it's about STEM. It's about technology. It's, a, it's sort of fear and anxiety, for example, that we have about the degree to which we are falling further and further behind other parts of the industrialized world in terms of being competitive, right, in a kind of global information-oriented type of economy. And she argues, right, that maybe our aspirations and maybe our vision for what the future building school might look like should expand beyond just preparing students, kids to be able to get good jobs 
in a technology-oriented future, and that we should be perhaps more diverse and more imaginative in terms of how we think about uh, schools and learning and what our responsibilities to students and our communities might be. And, and this notion, right, that, that, that the future is not something that kind of just exists out there for us to sort of discover and inhabit once we get there, but that is something that we are, in fact, building and creating and designing and developing today, right? And so the question is, what type of future are we building? What type of future are we designing? What type of future are we are creating? And how do we intervene in ways that produce outcomes that are more equitable, more sustainable, and more positive? Um, and so some, just some really interesting ideas about, about the role that schools can and should potentially play play in their communities, I've been really struck by. So we know, right, that there are all these sort of traditional literacies. There's reading, uh, there's, there's writing, there's math. But I'm, I'm really intrigued by this, this, this case that many are beginning to make for design literacy. Right? And the promise and potential that the design literacy uh, you know, can bring to, to, to young people, to, to learning environments, to schools, both formal and informal. And this idea, right, of helping students to develop some of the, the basic competencies related to thinking and design-oriented kinds of ways, right? So how do you problem solve? How do you begin to go through a series of protocols and processes and methods that allow you to produce a desired outcome, right? To make the world in a way that you would like to see that world actually exist. But, you know, in terms of my own work, I've, I've been, been thinking more and more about sort of what I would sort of add as kind of critical design literacy, right? And how do we begin to orient young people towards developing a, a kind of critical disposition towards the kind of design practices and activities that, that, that they might participate in? A kind of critical orientation toward the world around them. And one of the things that we've learned in this school and students that we've been working with is that it's not that difficult to tap into, or it's not that difficult, rather, uh, I guess yet to sort of tap into these kind of critical instincts that kids who find themselves on the edge, on the economic edge, on the political edge, on the social edge, um, that, that, that because of that uh, position of marginality, right, they develop a certain kind of critical disposition, right, that if leveraged and sort of tapped into effectively and positively and powerfully, could produce some really interesting insights and opportunities. And that's, and that's something that we learned very early on in the work that we started doing with students in terms of the kinds of things that they would tell us, the kinds of things that they would talk about, the kinds of ideas that they were able to associate with some of the issues surrounding their communities and some of the challenges and problems that they faced. And so in, in terms of my own work, I've been really trying to think about, you know, historically, how have we thought about schooling and education for kids who find themselves in these kinds of edge communities, right? If it's immigrants back at the early part of the 20th century, if it's after Brown versus the Board of Education, how do we integrate you know, African-American students into our education system? More recently, right, it's, it's, it's immigrants again. More recently, it's, it's kids who are kind of sliding further and further back as we see these kind of early childhood outcomes being sort of you know, influential in terms of uh, how kids enter into school already behind uh, in terms of um, uh, the kind of wealth gap and, again, the implications associated with that. And, and historically, I, I think our... our primary position has been to use schools in ways to create good citizens, right? To sort of socialize these, these students and socialize these kids into being obedient, into being dutiful, um, into being, uh, again, sort of good citizens. And what I'm really interested in terms of the work that we're proposing to do is to perhaps encourage kids to be critical citizens, right? That is to say, to be critical of the world in which they live in, critical of the challenges that the communities face, and how do we equip them with the skills and the competencies and, and the orientation to address these problems in a more compelling way. Um, some of this work has been in, in, inspired by some, some of the, the, the research of Charles Letbeater. 
who's based in the UK, uh, wrote a really interesting report called Learning in the Extremes, which you can find online, um, where he's sort of traveled many different parts of the world to try to look at how learning is being transformed, right? New models of schooling, new models of education, transformational models of schooling, transformational models of schooling. But the interesting thing here is that he didn't go, right, to some of the places that you might predict, right? Finland, which, you know, arguably, at least many argue, right, produces some of the, the finest schools, at least some of the profound at least some of the finest outcomes in terms of testing, uh, you know, some of the some of the, the more higher performing schools in this country, other parts of Asia. He went to some of the poorest places in the world, okay, in India, in Brazil, in Africa, in Asia, um, places where he argued, right, that 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 the way in which we think about schooling, right, schooling as compulsory, uh, you know, schooling as you know, you know, nine to four every day, uh, you know, kids go home and, and they take their homework with them and they come back to school the next day prepared to talk about that and prepared to turn that homework in. He argues, right, that in extreme conditions of poverty, right, drought, famine, war, you name it, that that notion of schooling simply isn't possible, right. It simply is impossible. And so how have, have, have social entrepreneurs and education innovators in environments like this been forced to kind of rethink what schooling should be like, right? What learning should be like and what kinds of skills students should actually be developing when and if they actually have an opportunity to sit in a classroom or sit in a, in a design learning environment. And I find that work quite interesting and it's, and it's certainly work that, 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 that's kind of informing uh, the type of interventions that, that, that we would like to try to make in terms of, of connecting learning to, to real-world-related issues, uh, learning that's more hands-on, learning that's production-centered. But again, I think learning and work, that's critical, right? And so, you know, I think we... I wonder, are we sort of ready to move beyond the kind of euphoria, right, of kids being designers, kids being content creators, kids being media producers, kids being, you know, participants in network publics, and, and sort of trying to build design learning environments that encourage that type of activity, but in relation to, right, important social issues that these uh, young people face, issues that the communities face, and how do, we, how do we build those kinds of spaces. So that's basically what this summer project is designed to do, uh, is to keep students engaged, to keep students active, uh, but also to, uh, to, to encourage them to begin to start seeing the very things that they use, right? If it's Tumblr, if it's Twitter, if it's, uh, you know, Instagram, if it's digital photography, storytelling, whatever it is that they do, uh, how do we begin to sort of use those same platforms, those same literacies, those same technologies in ways that encourage them to be active citizens, that, in, that encourage them to, to, to sort of develop this notion that they are active agents in their community, that they have a stake in their community, and that they have the capabilities of developing the kinds of skills and design literacies that enable them to, to, to be, be active players and citizens in the world in which they live. So, um, so that's just kind of what we've been doing. Uh, I'll skip through those last three, and uh, I don't know if there are any, any, any thoughts, questions, or reactions. Uh, kind of open it up uh, for that opportunity. Okay, so we do have some time for Q&A, and uh, so if I, I'll take the liberty to ask the first question, and then we'll pass the mic the audience here. And so for those who, who don't know me, I'm Fox Harrell, um, Associate Professor of Digital Media here in Comparative Media Studies, where I run the Imagination, Computation, and Expression Lab. And one of the things that we're interested in, we, I, I call critical computing. And so I think it relates quite closely to your critical digital uh, literacies uh, work. And one of the things we're interested in is the values that are actually built into the technologies. And so that would be, for example, the kids who uh, you describe here using these technologies for sharing, for empowerment, and through these after-school programs. Also using the technologies to go home and say, play themselves through 
characters that might undermine them, whether they're a, a young woman who has to play in Princess Leah bikini uh, armor in order to get some kind of enhancements, or African-American youth who have to take a detriment to intelligence to, to play in a game. They construct their brand identities through, through their, their tastes through, through these media uh, as well. And so there are a lot of these some aspects that could also be seen as uh, disempowering. And that's built into the technology, to the algorithms and, and data structures. And so one of the questions I have is in this critical literacies uh, perspective, uh, can, can you talk a little bit about some of that work about kind of critical awareness about the technologies themselves and the values that they, that they might mm-hmm. impose? I know a lot of critical literacies work it try, it looks at digital themes. So uh, Freire, Street, uh, Jabari Mahiri. So they all look at the kind of themes that the students are interested in. But some of the times those themes are really driven in, in part by the technology mm-hmm. making of consensus, making of brand identities, et cetera. And so how do you navigate that, that kind of uh, tension? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And, and, and oftentimes sort of you know, influenced and mediated by the, the kind of popular culture uh, terrain that, that they oftentimes find themselves immersed in and participating in as well. Um, and I think, I mean, that's, that's why in, in, in many respects I'm you know, increasingly frustrated by the, by the decision of schools to block these applications and resources in schools because it, it prohibits the opportunity to have those, those kinds of conversations, right? Those kinds of learning moments and opportunities. Although I, I think you can make a strong case, right? So, and over the years, I've tried to make it, make it a point to, to really get in and observe and interact with, 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 with a range of, of, of different kinds of schools. Um, so the school that we've been immersed in through this Connected Learning Project is primarily the one that I just described to you. But I also get a chance to spend some time in, in some really interesting schools that, uh, that are incredibly rich in terms of resources, uh, imaginative in terms of, of curriculum, um, and, and more or less at least somewhat uh, kind of open and forward thinking in terms of how they understand their own investment in these issues and, and how they create opportunities and spaces for kids to, to engage these issues in more meaningful kinds of ways. And, and what I'm getting at is... is so we know from, from a lot of that data that I, that I shared with you earlier that, that black and Latino youth are, are quite active, right, in terms of games, in terms of mobile, in terms of social media. Um, but but to, to the extent that a lot of that activity and engagement is, is happening outside of any kind of um, engagement with, 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 with adults, uh, engagement in, 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 in more kind of formal learning spaces, um, I, I wonder to, to, to what degree um, are they at a disadvantage, right? In, in other words, uh, just, just to give you an example, um, in some of the schools that I've been in that, that are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, you know, there, there are advisories or opportunities for, for students to actually have conversations with teachers and with mentors about some of these issues related to, to the ethical responsibilities of participating in, in online communities, about some of the challenges uh, that you sort of allude to in terms of the, the, the constraining choices uh, that people might have based on the, on the algorithms or just the design of a, of a platform itself and how that intersects with our notions of race, gender, bodies, and things of this sort. Um, and so the, 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 and even in, in households and with parents, right, who are also in, 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 in some degrees, you know, connected to the digital world, they're using these platforms, they have smartphones. I mean, a lot of these students that we interact with, right, they come from households where, where the parents aren't connected, right, where the parents have no idea what Facebook is, where, where they don't have a smartphone, and where, where, where the students oftentimes are kind of the technology gurus in the household. Um, and, 
And while on the one hand, you know, we, we have tended to celebrate that, it also suggests, right, that again, uh, they, are, they are situated in environments where the opportunity to, uh, to develop these kinds of literacies and competencies uh, are much more limited and, and, and kind of constrained. Um, and so, w- so when schools, I think when schools block social media, they also block the opportunity for students to have access to the conversations, to the opportunities to think about these issues, perhaps in ways that they may not think about, right? And so it's not that these issues don't, don't impact or, or influence them, because they certainly do in terms of bullying, in terms of some of the things that, that, that you refer to, uh, but the degree to which they are left largely to navigate that on their own, right, uh, is, is, is certainly problematic and, 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 and kind of troubling, I think. Uh, and I think those are certainly some of the challenges that, uh, that, that, that spaces like this face. Right, yeah, thanks for the really scintillating observations. So, uh, will you? Yeah, so maybe to follow on that, um, I wonder if you could say more about, I mean, the notion of um, digital equity is a really, is a really rich and, and evocative idea, um, but I'm trying to pin down a little more precisely what you mean, because mm-hmm. so, so it seems like penetration of, of uh, digital media is pretty good. Mm-hmm. It seems like use rates are pretty high. Uh, it's not the old digital divide. And yet when I hear where the inequity is, just in your last answer to Fox here, it's, well, the parents aren't, the home isn't wired, the parents don't use it. That sounds like digital divide, uh, the, the old digital divide argument. So, so is it about a more normative use of these media? Is it about a more normative set of, and, and if so, what, yeah. how is that constituted? What is it? So if we get beyond access and use, where is the, where, where, what constitutes equity? Yeah, and, and it's, yeah, it's a it's a it's, it's a really uh, great question and an important question. Um, so, so the scenario that you alluded to in terms of the parents and what's happening in the home is is interesting because, I mean, it it, it in some ways suggests that, um, and and I and I I try to sort of state that it's not that issues of access have been completely sort of sort of removed from the equation. Uh, but, but the manner in which they matter, I think, you know, just sort of continues to evolve because of some of these changing practices and modes of adoption that, that I've alluded to. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess for me, the, the equity issue, right, is, is thinking about the context and the environment in which, in, in this case, the students that we're working with, the context and the environment in which, in which they are using technology. And to what degree the support networks are there, uh, to what degree, uh, let's say, for example, in, in the case of the school, uh, a carefully designed and rigorous curriculum is developed and offered for them in terms of how they engage and interact with technology, the, the extent to which that's absent, which I think then creates some equity issues. Um, but even when they, when they go to homes, right, when they go to homes that, that may or may not be connected or when they, uh, you know, have parents who may or may not be connected. And, and some of these students come from, from parents who, um, who, who maybe grew up elsewhere, right, in different countries, uh, maybe, you know, immigrated here, you know, many years ago. In fact, one of the students that I've been working fairly closely with, you know, his, his father and mother moved here when they were teenagers from Mexico. Um, you know, the, the dad uses social media a little bit, the mom not at all. Um, they're now divorced. Uh, the, the student that I'm working with lives with his mother. Um, so he lives in a home environment where... Um, you know, there's, there's, there's very little, if any, discussion about how he uses technology. Uh, the mom really has no real understanding of, of, of how he uses technology, um, what he does with technology. So the opportunity to have meaningful conversation and engagement with him is, is significantly limited. And, and one of the things that, that, that we have come to understand, I think, in terms of the research that we've been doing in this type of space is that 
is that adults still matter in, in young people's digital media lives. They matter as teachers, they matter as parents, they, they matter as mentors, as instructors. And, 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 and to what extent um, is, is there an equitable distribution of the opportunities to have these kind of intergenerational exchanges? I think that's just one, one example of, of, of what I still see as sort of the, the equity uh, challenge here. Um, but, but I guess for me, uh, and I was talking with Fox about this earlier, Increasingly, I see the issue of digital equity as, as one about digital literacy um, and developing uh, the kinds of literacies, the, the kinds of skills that, that enable young people uh, to, to sort of maximize uh, the, the very powerful potential that network media provides and offers. And, and, and what I don't necessarily see is, is, is the young people that, that, that we're working with is, is you know, growing up in in environments, if it's school, if it's home, if it's community, um, that, that fully, not necessarily fully recognizes, but is able to provide the resources and able to provide the support networks that allow them to cultivate, uh, I think, the kinds of design and network literacies uh, that I think are, are, are quite important. Um, so it's not so much that they don't have access to the tools, but to what extent do they have access to, 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 to some of the, the social and cultural capital, some of the soft skills associated with the use of technology, but also some of the hard skills, too, right, in terms of design, in terms of literacy, um, and, uh, and to what degree, uh, you know, is, is there still a kind of uneven distribution regarding the opportunities to interact with and, and to engage media in more meaningful kinds of ways? So these kids are creating blogs, they're creating YouTube videos, um, and you know, some of these students have YouTube channels, um, they, they participate in this transmedia uh, uh, project, um, but are they also, you know, cultivating the, the kinds of social networks and pathways that might allow them both to develop uh, the literacies, but also the opportunities to, to leverage and take advantage of these kinds of experiences and skills that they're developing? And that's and that's where we see some real challenges. Right, and that makes a lot of sense. And and of course, the the the, the domestic setting is a tough is a tough fix because it, I mean, as hard as it is to do anything in the schools. Fixing other people's lives is really tricky. But in terms of the curricular part, um, it, it sounds like you're suggesting that there are schools or there are districts where there are robust or, or, or useful media literacy programs. And I'd love to hear about that because um, the experience I have with people living in, in very expensive white suburbs or high-end private secondary schools, uh, 